Hello, this is Right at the Fork, and this is Chris Angelus, and I am without my regular, trusty podcast partner, Court Johnson. We are not in the studio. We have altered the podcast to produce a series we're calling Right at the Moment, so we can keep you up to date and hear from some of the wonderful people who've toiled so hard to build their restaurants and their livelihoods who are now dealing with uh, salvaging them in any way they can. And so we are not recording in the studio, as I said. I'm recording this, uh, these episodes or these interviews from my home in Manzanita using a cell phone with on uh, um, um, speakerphone along with another one that's just recording it. We thought asking our guests to figure out the technology to send us a file that sounds perfectly smooth was a little much to ask when they're going through a lot of things in their daily work lives and their daily personal lives right now that are, that are extraordinary. And so, um, so we're just happy to be able to uh, bring you these stories so that you can have a little, uh, a, some understanding as to what the restaurant owners are thinking, um, and we'll talk to some other people who aren't necessarily restaurant owners, um, what, what, what went into their decisions to change their restaurants, what they need to survive, and what, the pro what they think the prospects are. Of course, every day brings something new to this, um, this whole situation, so we're going to keep doing these every once in a while so you can hear from different people at different at different junctures uh, of this new life that we're living. Let me just say, I could sit on this on mic here and talk for an hour about my feelings and my fears, um, all the people that I really care about and the fact that we're all in this together. Uh, no matter who it is, someone's going, everybody's going through something different um, with this right now. Um, with kids home from school, it's very difficult. And, um, of course, as we talked to Kurt Huffman this morning, uh, you know, when we come out of this, it's going to be a very different landscape in terms of which restaurants can still be around, how they can staff their restaurants, and who's going to be dining out after all of this. I know my income is taking a big hit, and uh, it's, it's all... It's all a big question mark right now, but everybody's trying to piece it together. And I think as a community and hopefully as a government, we will. So um, I'll invite you to listen to the podcast we recorded last week with Craig Peterson of Ringside Steakhouse and also John Gorham of Toro Bravo Group. You know all his restaurants. Also encourage you to visit those places and buy gift certificates and also at John's restaurants. Uh, they're doing, they're providing free food for people and they're also doing, uh, revised menus for takeout. So, uh, please visit those folks as often as you possibly can while you're in, uh, uh, you're in a lockdown right now. So, um, we thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, if you're interested at all, because you're going to have some time on your hands, we've got years, seven years of archives of interviewing people in our food world. Surely there are some people that you uh, that you know or that you're interested in hearing from. Go back and listen to those. But we really appreciate your sticking with us. We appreciate our sponsors, Ringside, Toro Bravo, and Zupans, 
um, sticking with us through uh, through this as well. So um, this interview with Kurt Huffman took place this morning, March 23rd, 2020, uh, just a couple of weeks after he made the decision to close all of his restaurants. Um, and I invite you to go to chefstablegroup.com to take a look at what restaurants those are. You know, you're familiar with Oxen, St. Jack and Lardo and Grassa and Cooper's Hall and um, just go down the list and visit those folks. But so you, just to give you a little context that Kurt's dealing with 20 restaurants right now. Um, and so that's a big challenge. One restaurant, period, in normal, under normal operating circumstances is a stressful uh, stressful livelihood. 20 under these circumstances is particularly crazy. And so given that, we really appreciate the time that Kurt took out of his day today to speak with us about uh, what's going on, what his thoughts are uh, through this terrible, terrible time. Thank you very much, Kurt. And thank you very much, listeners, for uh, sticking with us. What we are doing is just, we're going to record some uh, interviews along the way. So if we had spoken last week, it probably would have been a slightly different discussion as it is today, or it would be five days from now. So I know you were one of the first that I saw that decided to close your restaurants. Um, and... We read about your thinking, but can you take us through a little bit about how you got to that decision? Pretty much ahead of the curve. It had to be a hard decision. Yeah, it's a terrible decision. Um, and, I mean, you go through, I think all of us, all, all restaurant owners went through the same process, which is saying, first, you know, how do we survive? Uh, what does this all mean? Um, we're paying attention to what's happening up in Seattle. At least that was my focus um, because I started getting phone calls from colleagues up there about business being fine, fine, then down 50%, then down 95%. So I was just waiting for the, the ground to drop out from under us because I thought there was going to be more of a public panic. And so... I think instinctively in those moments, you know, we're, we're an industry of survivors, I think is not, nobody goes into the restaurant business to, to get rich. It's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's an industry made up of um, people who are really passionate about what they do and, and hopefully you end up doing well. But I think there are much better industries to go into if you want to, if the ultimate goal is to have a comfortable life and make a lot of money. Um, because this is a this is a tough business, um, but in any case, we waited and uh, tried to adjust. We really were tracking almost like in a you know like a a war room kind of scenario. The numbers are we going down? Where are we? Managers were really tracking la labor, um, making sure that we're you know, making sure that we're maintaining at the very least an ability to pay our bills and stay open. And that was, uh, that was just a full obsession for, um, for two weeks. And in week one, we didn't see a thing. Um, and by week one, I'm talking about, 
Now, this isn't a long time ago. These, no. these have been very, very slow weeks. Right. Um, so I'm thinking... Was it two weeks ago uh, that you're talking about? Yeah, so it's around March 2nd. March 2nd right. is when I really started focusing on it. And I remember emailing, I'm talking to the guys from uh, El Gaucho up in Seattle, uh, Tom Douglas group, um, you know, and they had closed, they were closing right around then. And it was kind of this shocking moment. Um, and so we started tracking and worrying and, and then around the ninth, um, I really started, uh, being kind of conflicted about things because you kept seeing reports talking about how just, just the, the growth of, uh, of the virus uh, relative to people kind of remaining in proximity to one another. And then now it's only, it's become a, a hashtag, you know, this flatten the curve idea. So right. and yeah. that week, you know, the ninth through 13th, we're just inundated with information, studies, opinions. And so in that, in that context, we were just trying to digest everything while, making sure that no matter what, our businesses survived and our employees kept their jobs. Yeah, and Tom Douglas, back uh, around the second or so, I I can only speak to what I was thinking, but I thought it was, at the time, there wasn't a lot of information out there to be panicked, down here anyway. When I saw that, that was uh, it seemed like it was out of left field. So, But you're, you have to keep those things on your radar as the pilot of a ship, you have to know what's going on. But back then on March 2nd, no one was, I don't think anybody was really aware of what was coming down the pike, except for some people who'd had briefings who didn't pay attention, I suppose. Right. Yeah, I, uh, we, it was, yeah, it's just, I mean, I can't believe that was only a week ago. You know, it just feels like forever ago. You know, we've just been in a war zone, it feels like, ever since. Um, well, that was actually about that was actually about three weeks ago because we're recording this on the twenty third. So, right. But yeah, but it was about two weeks ago, right? Two, less than a week and a half ago before the travel ban went into place. For me, that was the that was right. the first big alarm. On I think that was Tuesday, so it was a week from t- two weeks from tomorrow. Right. Yeah, the travel ban. I guess by that time. We just knew something bad was happening, and we and we just didn't quite understand. We didn't understand the scope of it. Um, uh, you know, by the time I saw that the, the French had closed down restaurants, I mean, I you know I owned restaurants in France for ten years, so to to understand that they would do something that dramatic without mass public protests, and you know, you can't you 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 know you try to change the anything in France and there's protests in the street and people blocking freeways and, and strikes. So for something like that, it's fun, as profound as that to happen and people just saying, yep, that's the right decision to me was a really kind of pivotal moment. And I thought, okay, I've, I've, I'm misunderstanding this, this situation and the gravity of the situation. Um, and I think I was explaining away, the idea of what was happening in Italy is just being uh, an overwhelmed, uh, you know, socialized medicine system. And I'm sure that I, there were cultural biases that I brought to that analysis. And 
And then it just became pretty clear to me by, I think it was the, on Thursday, the 19th, I decided I was going to close down everything. Was that uh, a decision you could, that you have restaurant partners, you have to make that decision to make a lot of calls, right? Is that, or is that a yeah. decision you could just make unilaterally? No. And by, sorry, that was Thursday the 12th was really the day that, um, I thought, you know, I remember texting back and forth with um, Jessica Silverman, my um, person who's been with me for 11 years now, and mm-hmm. saying, I think we got to close uh, everything. And then I got a call from a colleague really telling me, uh, you know, that I, I texted my thoughts and we had a long conversation at like one in the morning saying, why I shouldn't do that and why I shouldn't recommend that. And then I was really committed to, yes, let's maintain the social fabric of, uh, of our communities by providing jobs, by protecting our employees who are very exposed in these situations, you know, uh, especially our, our kitchen guys. I mean, most of them are making 15 an hour plus tips. So it's, there's not a lot of, there's not a really, robust social uh, security or safety net here. So that became my obsession. And then finally Saturday night when I was out and saw every place packed, I just had this, I had a really awful sinking feeling. And and then Sunday I just started calling, texting all the partners. I mean, it was like 4 a.m. when I kind of woke up in a panic about it. And I just started emailing everybody and saying, I, I think we got it. We can't wait. Everybody was talking about waiting to shut down um, with this pie-in-the-sky idea of getting um, insurance, you know, some sort of business interruption insurance. And finally, I was just like, this is crazy. We got we to gotta shut it down. Yeah. And, uh, and I think when they were confronted by the, the, the context and the gravity, I think, of the, of the moment, you know, everybody, I didn't have to convince anybody to do it. I think everybody felt like this is going to happen. We need to, you know, we need to kind of lead by example here um, and uh, and do the right thing. So it, it happened very quickly. Yeah, and everything changes by the minute. So uh, I can't imagine you with how many restaurants do you, are you involved with, Kurt? Twenty restaurants and then six other food and beverage businesses. You know, a catering company, events, right. uh, event spaces, uh, a bakery. So I mean, so, yeah, so it's pretty impactful for, for everybody. And with every every one of those is a large organization or a good sized small business anyway, with a lot of employees. And you're a guy with a heart. This has to be. How how are you coping and how are you finding some hope in this scenario right now? Um, I think after the the sadness uh, of everything and just kind of feeling like, you know, you have all of these years of work and everybody in the industry has put in various amounts, right? Um, but it's all such hard work. And, yeah. And uh, to just kind of feel like all of it's getting flushed down the toilet was really terrifying and, um, and uh, uh, emotionally very difficult for me. Um, and I think after that, after feeling like, um, everything was lost and how are we going to get past this? And even when we open what it's going to be like, I think then at least 
personally, I've now kind of turned to just kind of being in this uh, uh, warlike mentality of saying, I'm going to do everything I can to support my partners. And so it's just been, we've just been working nonstop since, uh, uh, since Monday of last week, you know, we fired, you know, I have, uh, 64 employees, uh, at chef's table. Um, and, uh, we fired all of them, but one, um, we laid off a total of 780 people. Um, and then we're trying to focus with the, with kind of these skeleton crews that we've kept on, um, figuring out a way to salvage something during this closure. Um, and then I spent the second half of the week, um, trying to build a brick wall or whatever you want to, you know, call this idea of protecting the cash reserves that we had. Um, there is no worse possible time in a year for this, uh, for, for administrative shutdown than mid-March. It is historically the lowest cash point of the year. And we had made, uh, you know, we were at a standard amount, uh, in all of our accounts. And we, um, you know, we're not burdened by a lot of debt, but, you know, so as a result, we don't keep a ton of money in the bank account. We usually keep about two months of payroll. Every restaurant's different because payroll differs, but, you know, we keep anywhere from a hundred to 25 grand in the bank at any moment. Um, and just monitor that and make sure that we're keeping enough in there and, uh, and then otherwise it just, you have small distributions that go out to the partners and the owners, but there's just no reason normally to keep, you know, a, a huge amount of money in there because it just traditionally just sits there. Um, and so we just kind of do slow distributions and we try to be responsible. So we know if there's a snowstorm or a five day stoppage or even a month stoppage because of something crazy, um, we felt like we can we we can overcome that. If not, there's business interruption insurance to help us. But All right. We didn't. For everything but this. this. For everything but this yeah. too. This and earthquakes, right? So right. the big one, right? The big one hitting is something that we thought a lot about, uh, and it's very very expensive to get earthquake insurance. You can't get it, but very few people had it. We thought we had the most robust business interruption insurance you can get, um, and. Uh, no, but there are there are outs. The insurance companies are very very good. It's their job to find reasons not to pay out because they're protecting their bottom line. So, right. um, uh, but in any case, the, it it hit at the exact wrong moment. Uh, not like it's the right moment, right? Right. Um, but uh, you know, if this had hit, I don't know, uh, October, you know, when we've just had a huge summer and we're feeling good. Um, then that'd be a different thing, but everybody's, you know, all my partners are paying their quarterlies for taxes. Everybody's, nobody's cash rich in this industry, except for the highest, highest performing places. Um, but nobody's cash rich, uh, you know, in the middle of March. So we're just building a, uh, we're building a protective, uh, uh, you know, we're unprotecting however I can the cash that each entity does have left and, uh, contacting landlords contacting service providers, um, and now we're just going through an a in-depth analysis of how long each place can last with the money it has. Right. And, 
so it's you know it's a pretty it's a pretty morbid exercise um, so you know when i think of, it's really hard to wrap one's mind around it so you know when we come out of this uh, we'll come out of it at some point, but of course you will have had bills that you weren't, weren't able to pay along the way. And so, same with all, all employees and all customers, uh, not all, but many of the diners. So when you come out of it, the prospects are not that great that everybody's going to all of a sudden go, hey, I'm going to go out for a $100 meal tomorrow. But when you really think about all of this, um, you know, a conversation I had, I've had with a couple of restaurant owners there, as far as the leases that you have, the landlords uh, who control the space, they're not going to have better prospects for a tenant when you come out of it than an ox or a lardo or a St. Jack. I mean, if those businesses fail, uh, these the spaces are just going to sit empty anyway, and it's going to be a domino theory, a domino effect, is it not? I think so. That's certainly what I'm telling my landlords. So, um, you know, and we're, um, you know, we genuinely don't know which places will be around in uh, 10 weeks. Right. So this is just right now, there is only one hope, and that is uh, federal money. And I think it's the same thing that our landlords are uh, waiting on as well. Um, all of the loans, you know, these loans that you hear going through the Senate right now, these loan programs for small businesses, um, all of them include language that says that at the term of the loan, uh, they will forgive any money spent on uh, payroll. Um, uh, I've seen utilities in Rubio's current bill. And rent. So when you see these small business bailout plans, they are designed to at least solve two things. One is the viability of these small businesses, and two is the well-being of their landlords. Um, because you can't, there's a lot of, you know, we rent from, we, we have leases with small independent people. And, um, and so they have concerns as well. You know, I own... Uh, where the chef's table office used to be is a little triplex in industrial southeast. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm panicked about that because I don't, you know, I've, I've got, I've got tenants in there and my basement tenants are in the food industry. So I offered to cut their rent in half, uh, to help them. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I just pray that everybody can, can make it because then I'm going to fall behind on that mortgage and it is a domino effect. And I have a lot of empathy for my landlords, but I also tell them uh, that they need to do everything I'm needing to do because this is not a restaurant industry or a tenant industry. This is a systemic right. issue, right? This is not just uh, my problem. This is all of our problems. And so there are relief programs out there for specific to businesses impacted um, by uh, by the virus, and uh, there are rent, excuse me, uh, mortgage relief programs that are out there. So everybody needs to be scrambling right now. And frankly, commercial real estate owners are not used to having to scramble like this. Um, so in many ways, the restaurant industry, just by the nature of who we are as operators, 
as kind of an industry of survivors and scrappy survivors, I think we're more well suited for crises than uh, large institutional investors that own massive amounts of real estate. They tend to be less adept, in my opinion, to chaos, uh, to uh, unexpected situations. You know, they invest in real estate because it has a very consistent, stable return. Um, so it's interesting to watch them freak out as well because I don't see them ever freaking out. So, yeah. Well, um, you know, we're always freaking out in our industry, right? There's always right. something. It's constant freak to, out. To go wrong, you know, a minimum wage goes up, right. uh, this, that, this, the other thing. We're always freaking out about something. So, you know, and it, make, it makes that minimum wage issue all of a sudden seem so trivial. Everything seems so small in comparison to this. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were, I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah, everything, you, you get out of this, but it's also going to create a generation of hardened operators, right? Because, um, you know, those of us who make it through this, and I hope, you know, in, in large, you know, as many of us make it through this as possible, I know I'm, I'm going to lose a lot. Um, and at this point, I don't know, for instance, how I'm going to avoid uh, personal bankruptcy, uh, I just don't know how that's possible, given the circumstances, given the number of leases that I'm a personal guarantor on, given the number of loans that I'm on. I just don't know how I avoid it. Um, and it may be because I'm the personal guarantor on almost everything, and I've always protected my partners from having to guarantee anything, that I'll just have to you know, throw myself on the flames uh, to protect uh, you know, my partners in the restaurants which would be a small price to pay, right? right? If we can save a bunch of them. I mean, you know, bankruptcy stays in your record for six, seven years or something. But, um, you know, that, that I don't know how I'm going to get out of that. And I'm sure many, many other people are in, in a similar situation. Um, but we'll find, you know, we'll, we'll, there's just so many unknowns. And we'll, we'll find out uh, how we come out of this. But I'm convinced that it's going to mean we are a tougher breed when, once we come out. And my hope is that um, the, at least at, at the governmental level, at the state, local, you know, county level, um, people will have kind of a, a renewed appreciation for the importance of local restaurants um, and not just take take it uh, for granted um, as I feel like, and I think the entire local restaurant industry feels like for five or six years, whether it's these proposals to do meal taxes or this or that, it's always this idea of just loading on to the food and beverage industry. Um, and, you know, whereas we are the number one reason people cite travel to Portland. Right. We are an economic driver in this city. Um, and it's exhausting to feel like you're getting beaten up all the time by people who feel like, oh, there's another opportunity for us to tax tourists. So let's get them through the restaurants. Right. Um, it's uh, you know we'd love to start being treated like the film industry is treated in Portland, where we we bend over backwards with tax credits to bring this business to town. Like I hope that there's a seismic change once this is over, where uh, the city, state, county recognize that you know you need to give subsidies, in fact, to local independents because they are going to be hobbled and weakened and we will not for quite a while have the same industry we had here. Um, there's a real genuine risk of a, of a total invasion of a well-funded 
um, you know, chains, uh, the kinds of restaurants that have had very, very little success here. Um, right. But, you know, how do you, I can't compete with people with, you know, $20, $30 million of cash on hand. Right. You know, we can't, we can't compete with that. And, um, but that's not necessarily going to work in Portland. So, yeah, it's hopeful that they'll see that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's all new. So for to expect that anybody's going to change overnight, that's not going to happen. But I wonder, you know, when you say um, we're going to be, you, you hope, you are sure you're going to be more hardened. I think your industry is really hardened as it is. The hardest work, I always call it the hardest working people I know. So uh, how how much harder? I I don't mean to belabor this, but how much? What does hard, more hardened mean for you outside of hoping for legislative relief in the long term? What does more hardened mean? Just, um, well, I think that I think in general we're uh, an incredibly progressive industry, um, and um, and we we've had relative good fortune. I mean, it's a tough industry, but you know, it's been a pretty dynamic, um, a pretty dynamic run for Portland and the, the, the growth. And it doesn't mean that we haven't all had failures or anything else. But I, I just think of things like this, and I remember, I feel like we're going to end up being those people that talk about the virus like our grandparents talked about wars, right? And our and my children are going to roll their eyes at it. And I think about how it changed them. To just be a little bit more hardened, just kind of like, right. you know, pay more attention to things, be more demanding of people, be more careful with money. Yeah. All of those character traits that I think we associate with people that have gone through uh, kind of life upending um, moments, it, it turns them a little tougher. Right. And uh, uh, at least I think, and I don't, I hate to think that um, that happens, but it's kind of my gut. It's like, man, we're going to. I'm definitely going to appreciate uh, what we have a hell of a lot more after going through this. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to work harder to protect it um, than I ever thought I would. Um, so I just think those kinds of, I think that's the, inst- I think that's the reaction that will, I, for me personally speaking, uh, and the, when I'm talking to my partners, we're just going to be tougher. You know, right. we're going to be less tolerant, of the city and the state and the county uh, asking us to make sacrifices right. and um, uh, that, that's that's my instinct uh, it's it's really you know the only saving grace I can I don't there aren't a lot of saving graces but you mentioned an earthquake before then you wouldn't even have real estate there so you'd be putting back you know putting a city back together so it sounds even tried to say, but grasping for straws and anything positive for for the industry and for a lot of people out of work right now with uh, little hope, at least everything, the structure, the infrastructure is still in place. So hopefully, right. hopefully the politicians can do what's the right thing and not turn it into politics in Washington, which it looks like they're starting to do. You're look, I'm looking up to what Canada's doing, and that looks so appealing right now. Um, but at any rate, yeah, Kurt, and honestly, I just don't think in the industry that we really, you know, we're just so focused on getting out of this that um, right now it's just let's see what the bill looks like when it's through. 
let's apply. I mean, that's all me and my, you know, I have people that are helping are volunteering, which is a very nice thing to help us through this moment. Right. With HR professionals and things like that, which is very gratifying um, to help us process our, you know, all of our uh, unemployment claims that are going to be flooding in this week. Um, but also helping us apply for the SBA loans. It's just all hands on deck. You know, it's now first we wanted to have our employees be the first waiting, uh, for, for unemployment. Um, and, you know, so we got everything submitted, uh, Monday before the administrative closure from the governor. Um, then now we're trying to be amongst the first to get our SBA applications in, uh, for the emergency loans. Um, and then we'll see what those emergency loans look like. And I think probably in three or four weeks, we're going to kind of be at this, there's going to be this calm of just waiting. You know? mm-hmm. But for now, it's just, it's full on war zone, battle, war room, whatever you want to call the, you know, the appropriate analogy. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I, and I think the next step for us is figuring out what the hell things are going to look like once we reopen. Right. You know, it's, it's pretty terrifying because... We just don't know. I mean, it's very, very possible that we're going to end up in a situation where we have, um, um, where we have to have uh, half of our occupancy. I think there's going to be limits on uh, how many people can be in your space at any one time, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense, right? The whole six foot radius thing. Right. But how, you know, how do I run? Um, any restaurant with 30 people seated instead of 60. Right. What are the, what are the economics of that look like? Right. And so um, then that means prices have to go up and they can't because your diners aren't going to be able to afford that. So, right. Yeah. I mean, or, and, or you just, you have to go down, you know, and I think that one of the depressing things is at least preliminarily as we enter this brave new world is what can we afford to pay people? Right. Right. So, and that's especially going to be impactful for our, our, our general managers um, and, uh, and any, any of our management, right? I mean, we've gone, from, uh, we've gone from an environment where the last three or four years, all we've done is try to figure out how to pay our people the maximum amount possible right. um, by tip reallocation, um, by this, by this other thing, and... Now, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God, how do we survive? How do we pay them you know? anything? How do we how do we stay? And I think it's going to be modified menus. And this is what I'm advising my sit-down partners is you need to figure out how to run a menu with half the bodies. So you need to pare down what you're serving. You need to figure out how to basically how to run the entire business with about half the people that you had before. Um at least to look at it on paper. Right. And I, I pray that we come back and we're able to do similar numbers. But if we have these occupancy restrictions, how do we, we can't do that. And right. then I can't just reopen and hemorrhage money because I want to, you know, have the same staffing levels. It's just never good. You can't do right. that. So we have to go through all this scenario planning now and, and we take their financials from the last few years. We, reduce income by 40% and then we say what can we afford to do yeah but um, it's hard for you to do because you don't even know what the relief packages look like now so it's, you're doing it in the abstract you're absolutely doing it in the abstract but we have to get ahead of it we have to know we have to be ready and prepared to act as soon as we can um, and 
uh, you know, our what I keep telling my partners is that I'm going to do everything I can to maximize the chances of us uh, surviving this. And, you know, that is my number one priority. Um, and because we, I know that not all of our places will survive. Um, and I know that um, uh, those that do are going to have to be really, you know, ready to buckle down. And the partners are going to have to work harder um, than they probably ever had before. And it's not going to be easier. You know, we're going to make it through this with a lot of places, but it's going to be hard. Right. You know, for the partners that had stopped working the line, they need to be back on the line. Uh, for the partners that, you know, for, I mean, it's just the, the new environment that we're going to open to is, is, is also really terrifying because mm-hmm. um, it just feels like all this, everything that we've done for the last 10 years and um, just kind of throws out the window and you're back into this interminable fight for, for survival. Um, and... Uh, I'm so sorry, Kurt. I appreciate. I, 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 first of all, I only plan on this being 10 minutes of your time, and you've taken over 30, so I really appreciate it. Just one question: If, if for the immediate future, do, if uh, we have a, um, you know, if everything needs to shut down, can you still do your takeout and your delivery that you're? Yes. Yeah, under the current uh, under the current language that we've seen, we can. Um, and we're trying to be very, very careful about that. If you go to Lardo or Grasa, you know, they don't even let people inside. Mm-hmm. They have to come up, knock on the door, give a name, and a person inside literally hands a bag through the door, you know, through the open door. Right. So we're being extraordinarily cautious about it. Um, and um, But it's not, you know, we have to be careful. I mean, if, if anybody on our staff is feeling even a tiny bit not well you know we send them home we're paying for them to go home we're not even talking about amount of sick leave or anything this is just survival right. if you're feeling sick you've got to go home we'll pay you um and this is just and then they can't come back until they you know until they're 100 percent better um and in the absence of testing that makes things a little bit weird but um i think you know, so far we've been very, very fortunate. We are proactive on this. I think we're, um, you know, we're a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, we're, we're having the utmost precaution at each location. Uh, there's almost no interaction between any guests or any delivery person and our people. Um, so, um, and we're working with very tiny teams. You know, Lardos right now are working with two people, uh, and they barely interact. One, one's in the kitchen and one's at the counter. Yeah, wow. Right? They're, they're just they're just passing food through a window, and you're packaging it and sending it out. So it's just, um, it's a crazy time. But I hope that, and I, I, I'm encouraged to see the res- the public response, um, because I think Portlanders are proud, you know. Yeah, and so. and they value their food community <laughs> over a lot of things. So. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of people yeah. that will that are supportive, and of course, um, we wish you the best, Kurt. Man, I'm thinking of you all the time, and everybody out there. There's so many people at all different facets, different facets of the industry, the suppliers, everything. Um, oh, it's yeah, it's just it's just a, a total bloodbath. Yeah, um, but I think we're gonna, you know, 
many of us will make it through and then we'll be more dependent than ever on, uh, you know, on our customers. So our hope is that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be a, a very gritty scene uh, when we reopen. And um, uh, so it, it, it won't be, for the consumer, it won't be a bad, won't be a bad thing, except that there's so much, there's going to be so much less choice. Right. Um, but I think that hopefully it'll be an opportunity for the for Portlanders to come back out and really support support the local because it's going to be a really critical 12 month period after we reopen. Um, and I think during that period, there's going to be an enormous amount of closures. Um, uh, again, because those that didn't make it and can't adjust just won't have the cash to continue. So, right. um, you know, we're talking 12 months until things feel a little bit more normal. Right. Um, so it all depends on what, what the government does too. Well, thank you. Kurt, love to your family. Um, love to your both, thank both you. your families, your family, family, your work family too. So, um, thanks so much for coming thank on you. and I hope we can have an actual chat about something that isn't so stressful. Um, <laughs> soon. I well, I wanted I to, I've been wanting a little chat with you too. So I, now's not the time, but we'll catch up with you sometime in the next couple of months. All right, man. Thank you. All right, Chris. Talk Take to care. You okay. okay bye. This has been Right at the Fork with your host, Chris Angelus, and I'm Court Johnson. It's brought to you by Zupan's Markets, Toro Bravo, Inc., and Ringside Steakhouse. Big thank you to uh, those great sponsors who allow us to do what we do and bring you these stories. And speaking of Zupan's Markets, right now they're adjusting some things to help us all deal with the impact of coronavirus. Uh, that means they've changed their daily schedule. All Zupan's markets now open daily from 8 to 8, which allows them to take better care of their associates as well as replenish shelves and also clean the stores a little more effectively. They've also instituted that they're going to start opening their stores one hour earlier on Mondays and Thursdays from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. to allow seniors and those people that might have uh, compromised immune systems to come in and shop without large groups around them. They've also, out of abundance of caution, shut down their salad and poke bars, but they are increasing the number of grab-and-go offerings, which if you've heard Chris and I talk about it, we love to be able to go in there and grab ready-to-eat meals, which is uh, one of the great things that we love about Zupan's Markets. They've also suspended all events taking place in their stores uh, through April. So keep your eye on Zupans.com with the latest on what's happening there. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right